Welcome fellow horror hounds and welcome to the latest episode of Talk and Stalk, your own holy home for horror. I'm your host as always, Barry, and I have a special guest with me today, uh, a fellow friend and fellow film buff, uh, somebody that has actually done a few podcasts with me in the past. Uh, they're making their long-awaited return, um, and this is The Sadist Samuel. Ah, uh, you're very too kind, sir. Thank you very much once again for having me on board, and thank you everyone for joining us into our dark descent into the infamous, the notorious, even the unseen and obscene. It's uh, very good to have you back, mate. Obviously, it's been a long time. It's probably been about six months, around five or six months since we last did a podcast together. Um, oh, you know how it is, you know, slaying slaying demons and battling the forces of evil, and dealing with those serial killing stalkers, the supernatural kind as well. You know, it's just normal I days I've, for us. I've got a fiance in two little ones, so I know exactly what that's like. <laughs> um, yeah, not even the holy water actually works anymore. But uh, yeah, it's do you have to... a young priest and an old priest? <laughs> uh, I, I just use the powers of Christ. The power of Christ seems to compel them. Um, <laughs> Most of the time, anyway. But uh, yeah, so it's uh, it's good to have you on board again. Um, now, so obviously you're my corrupted co-host, and uh, today's podcast um, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. Uh, we're basically going to be kind of focusing on free directors, free directors that really need no introduction to horror fans out there, and we're just basically just going to be kind of talking about uh, what we deem to be their three best films. Um, and these three directors are going to be John Carpenter, Wes Craven, and George A. Romero. Three of the biggest names, I think, within the horror genre. Um, if this podcast proves to be successful, um, I'm sure we're going to do uh, another episode. Uh, I know there's certain directors that we want to talk about, the likes of uh, Sam Raimi, maybe David Cronenberg, Lucio Fulci. But for this podcast... We're going to be focusing on these three directors. Um, so I think the first director that we're going to uh, talk about is John Carpenter. Widely regarded as being one of the very best in the genre, wouldn't you agree, Samuel? Oh, there's certainly no question. I mean, his input with the likes of Halloween was an absolute game changer for the industry in itself. So um, I think it's fair to say that's definitely among our uh, three in terms of favourite and his best. Yeah, Carpenter's a guy that, uh, obviously his first, his movie debut was Dark Star back in 74. He's a director that very much kind of is horror, sci-fi. Um, you know, this guy has churned out a lot of classics, certainly a lot of cult classics. And uh, I think the first, we, we're going to get the ball rolling because there's quite a few films to get through here. Um, now, in third place for me, this is one of Carpenter's best movies, um, in my opinion, and that is The Fog released in early 1980. Um, what's your overall kind of thoughts on The Fog, Samuel? Well, it was a pleasant surprise. I was one of the misfortunate ones to have watched the remake beforehand. Thankfully, we, you know, reason came to be, we got around to watching it. And um, it was just a better film, I think, because of... Um, I just like this theme that it's, you know, it's a town that's celebrating, you know, these so-called great people that helped set this little town. But the problem was... They were they were murderous thieves. Yeah, it, it's very much a supernatural horror film, but it certainly has slasher elements to it as well, doesn't it? Um, I love the setting. I love the setting for this film, the coastal town of Antonio Bay, and a great cast, a great cast with 
you know, the ever-great Tom Atkins. I love Tom Atkins. Um, I know his favourite film apparently was Night of the Creeps in 86, of all the films that he worked on. Um, but this is one of my favourite film roles of his. Um, Adrian Barbell, great, who of course was actually married to uh, to John Carpenter at the time. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and uh, um, Janet Lee, obviously mother and daughter in this film. Um, I think you'd agree with me as well. This this film actually has a uh, a great score to it, composed by Carpenter himself. Well, that's always been one of the sort of the, the, the charms with the likes of Carpenter, especially when you, um, there's some concerts that he does do as well, of uh, the scores that he does as, and um, the same with what he did with Halloween as well, it's so distinctive, you know the auteur theory that's, um, you know certainly the fog and Halloween reinforce that because you could just, you could f- see the fingerprints in the score it's just, um, you can't necessarily see the fingerprints of the score per se, however it just it's very him, and I think that's why I think the fog is particularly the score is one I've revisited a few times. It is. It, it's yeah. The remake. Oh man. Oh yeah. <laughs> the two thousand five remake. So you actually watched that before the eighty original. Yeah, unfortunately, that's the consequence of being one of those younger people. That again, there were other worse remakes that I had to watch before the original. So um, yeah. like yeah. So yeah, it's unfortunate. Yeah. Um, yeah. As I say, I think this is one of Carpenter's uh, best movies. Uh, I love the score. I love the setting. Um, I was actually introduced to this film from quite a young age. I was probably about seven or eight when I first watched this. And there's one scene that always stood out to me. And it scared the hell out of me as a kid. And that's the scene where the old lady is actually looking after the young boy. And there's knocks at the door and the fog's coming through. And of course, you know, she gets taken away. You don't actually see her death, but obviously, you know, the uh, the undead fishermen, if you will, are actually killing her. And that always, that always left a mark on me, that scene. Um, I love the fact there's little nods to some of other Carpenter's films in here. Tom Atkins actually plays a character called Nick Castle. Nick Castle played Michael Myers in the original Halloween. Good friend of John Carpenter. Um, the Charles Cyphers that played Charles uh, Sheriff Lee Brackett in the original Halloween. His character name is Dan O'Bannon, and of course <laughs> Dan O'Bannon wrote Alien, um, and also went on to direct Return of the Living Dead in '85. You know, became a film director. Um, so I like all them little kind of like little nods and that. And it's just a film that, as I said, just just it manages to be quite creepy. Um, I love the fact of I know it was a, a relatively small budget. Um, and it, it's just a horror film. I, I believe I read somewhere that Carpenter actually gave the impression that this was actually a bigger movie than what it was. I mean, great cinematography from Dean uh, Dean Cundy as well, who also were you know quite a frequent collaborator with um, with John Carpenter. Um, so yeah, would would you go so far as to say the Fog is pretty much kind of a, a horror classic? I would say so. it's one of those that I think it's overshadowed by some of other Carpenter films, which we'll certainly get on to one in particular quite shortly. Yeah. So I think it is certainly a classic that deserves more recognition, I would say. Yeah, I mean, it definitely has a fan base. I mean, I know some people that absolutely love this film. I know some people that actually cite this as their favourite Carpenter film. Um, but not not to go too much off topic, there is definitely one other Carpenter film that is massively overlooked. Now, I'll admit, I'm ashamed for admitting this. I've never seen this from start to finish. And it's called Prince of Darkness. 
for a moment I thought you'd go say the mouth of madness. No, so, but well, that is go. definitely underrated as well. I, I I really like in the mouth of madness. I think that's a film that uh, doesn't quite get enough attention. Um, but I'm glad you, I'm glad you mentioned that because I love the kind of H.P. Lovecraftian tones in that movie. I love the whole kind of surrealistic nature that that, that film has. Um, have you seen Prince of Darkness? It's not one that I I missed the opportunity. We had in our society. It was um, a film that was shown. However, I had um, other duties that had to be attended to. Yeah, I mean, and, I'm start- ki- and I'm kicking myself for that. It stars Donald Pleasance. Um, I've heard it, it's very much an underrated Carpenter film. Um, and it, to be honest, actually thinking about it, it might be the only John Carpenter film I've not seen from start to finish. I've never seen it in its entirety and I need to. But for me, The Fog is definitely one of Carpenter's um, best. So we're going to move on to, uh, well, this is kind of second spot for me. Um, and that is 1982's The Thing. Now, would this be your number one pick for Carpenter, or would you kind of second place? It's a very difficult one, because The Thing was my first experience with John Carpenter. So, um, oh, I remember it was at a a market, and just seeing that blue DVD cover, it's just The Thing. And um, it had, boy, it had such an effect on me. So I think it is my favourite, Carpenter, but that doesn't necessarily mean I think it's his best. Okay. Let's make that distinction perfectly clear. Yeah, I, I think The Thing is great. I think it's one of the best sci-fi horror films ever made. It's very much considered, you know, a sci-fi horror classic. Um, I know that I think this was actually Carpenter's personal favourite. Of all the films he ever made, this is the film that he actually liked the most. And it hit him quite hard, actually, because upon release, this didn't do well. This wasn't that a commercial s- success, and it uh, it didn't even really go down well with uh, most critics at all and that and that doesn't surprise me i mean like you know et had just came out as well it was certainly with the time where people wanted nice aliens um <laughs> i didn't i'm not surprised that it's deemed his favorite i mean the creative freedom universal gave him so yeah. you said about the fog supposedly being a bigger film it's the same with the thing there were some part, special effects that were supposed to be in there that weren't however yeah. Like The Evil Dead, like A Nightmare on Elm Street, it found itself a completely new life when it was released on video. And technically speaking, the thing was banned on video in Britain for a little while. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it still holds up remarkably well now, doesn't it? The practical effects are... It's the bit with the dog. Yeah. Oh, my... There's some parts of it that are just absolutely top-notch. I mean, there's... um. The blood testing bit, when the revelation happens, okay, fine. I mean, some of the blood, maybe not so much. However, you know, this is all practical effects. It's nasty. It's quite, it yeah. is, it's a stomach churner. And I think it's even more complemented by the brilliant performances with the likes of Kurt Russell and Keith David. I think the big difference with this is that it's very unclear on who would go next. Whereas yeah. when you had the 2011 film, it was too predictable on who was going to die, who wasn't. Whereas Carpenter nailed it. Plus the score. Yeah. You, you got to tell us about the score. Uh, well, yeah, the score courtesy of Ennio Morricone, may he rest in peace, because he actually passed away last year. Um, a great kind of understated score. Simple, yet very effective. Um, you know, to me, this film is kind of pretty much a masterclass in suspense. You know, it's... Uh, Technically speaking, a remake of, you know, the 1951 sci-fi film, uh, The Thing from Another World. 
um, which also is basically an adaptation of a classic 30s story, uh, Who Goes There? Um, you know, I just love the sense of um, isolation, claustrophobia, um, very much kind of an Agatha Christie-esque, you know, who to trust, who's the alien creature. And like you said, you know, the practical effects, courtesy of Rob Bottin, who was actually um, a student of Rick Baker's. Um, I believe he was only 22 years old when he actually come up with the effects for this movie. That's a hell of an age to do some masterclass yeah. stuff like and, that. But uh, I suppose if your tutor is Rick Baker, it yeah. makes sense. And the previous year, of course, these two guys um, both direct, both, sorry, did the effects for werewolf movies. Rick Baker for An American Werewolf in London and Rob Bottin did The Howling. And Which these, both, again, stand out pretty damn well. Yep. And American Wealth in London, of course, got the Oscar. Rick Baker won the Oscar. That was the first uh, year that that uh, that category had ever actually been introduced. Rick Baker was the first ever winner of um, of that award. Um, so I, I I think the thing, like you said, with the scene, very suspenseful. Who's you know the 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 blood testing scene, uh, you know the, the the alien creature, just that whole kind of sense of paranoia. You know, who's I? I think it's a great site. I think it's a great horror movie. Uh, the prequel—I'll be honest—I didn't mind the prequel. I thought the prequel was actually okay. The problem I had with it, and I'm sure you'll probably agree, is the emphasis on CG. Oh, most certainly. I mean, there was one transformation that I thought, okay, that's actually pretty good. However, the majority of it, it just. It was very disconnected. I mean, you had a pretty game performance from uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead that mm. just wasn't enough um, to, to really to really hold up to it. I mean, it had some yuck in it, but it just there was just nothing that wasn't that didn't leave that sense of impression. Yeah, I think we're both fans of practical. I think most most fans are. We 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 love the practical effects, and the eighties was a great decade for that. You know, with the likes of the Thing and American Wealth in London, the Blob, the Fly. Uh, just, just so many great practical effects, even in the you know sci-fi and horror genres. Uh, so I, I, I personally, I think the sci, uh, the thing is a sci-fi horror classic. Um, so we're going to move on to top spot. I'm pretty certain. I don't think you have to be Sherlock Holmes to work out what's at number one here. Um, one of my all-time favourite slasher movies, the film that really kind of kick-started the slasher genre, if you will, Halloween, 1970. Oh, I thought you were going to say Ghost of Mars. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that might get in my top 20, I don't know, possibly. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, go on Halloween, I'll let you, uh, I'll let you take this away. Oh, that's not very, uh, very fair at all. I think um, it was one of those films that I remember being shown at, um, well, I'd seen it like five times before we saw it at university, but it was a double bill with uh, Slumber Party Massacre and Halloween. Yeah. So we were talking about formula and I got into some argument about the opening, about, um, you know, the babysitter uh, had sex and therefore she uh, she had to die in Michael Myers' eyes. And yeah. the person said, next to me said, well, how did you know they had sex? Yeah. Oh, it's just, it's just a shocker. The light, well, yeah, the light was, you know, the light going off was a bit of a giveaway. Um, the fact that there were clothes actually, uh, you know, she Judith Myers is actually sitting there in the nude stroking, you know, brushing her hair was a bit of a giveaway. Um, you know, it it's a movie, isn't it? It's such a simple concept. But the slasher subgenre owes so much to Halloween. Now, we had Black Christmas four years prior to it, certainly. You know, Halloween isn't the first film of its kind, but it was very influential and it was certainly the commercial success that really helped these films to follow. 
And even then, Black Christmas, I mean, that is some get towards the likes of Psycho and Peep and Tom, which is something we've touched on plenty of times before. Yeah. However, I think the reason why Halloween stood up so well is the efficiency and its simplicity. I mean, the, you know, Michael Myers is pretty much fairly simplistic and the synopsis is very simple. But again, you've got a game performance from Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah. She brings a real sense of vulnerability, uh, perfect in that role. Donald Pleasance, obviously a very established actor uh, who, you know, I mentioned on a previous podcast, originally didn't want to star in this film. It took some arm twisting. Um, his granddaughter was a big fan of uh, Dark Star, Carpenter's first film, um, and he came on board. But Christopher Lee turned it down. He said it was the biggest regret of his career. It's just a film that's directed so simplistic, but it's directed with a lot of finesse. It's all in the execution with Halloween. The score, iconic, one of the greatest scores in the history of horror. Um, you know, its emphasis, isn't it, is really on suspense um, as opposed to... Because there's very little blood, isn't there, in this movie? And it, you know, a very low body count. Oh, yeah. And that's where you could say it takes some inspiration from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You know, you don't have to see everything. And it's enough to... enough to have an imagination of what exactly was done. And uh, again, its budget, I think, was around $70,000. No, it was at, over it three, was it was about three hundred and twenty. Okay, yeah. I'm glad to be corrected on that. However, the amount it made in the box office, though, was phenomenal. I think it was like 50, 70 million. Uh, yeah, it actually made, I believe, just over 65 million, uh, making it the most successful independent film upon release. Um, yeah, it was uh, released in October 1978. It didn't actually get to the UK until 79. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a huge commercial success. And uh, even though Carpenter had directed two films prior, this is the film that really made Carpenter. This became, this made him a name to be, uh, to be kind of reckoned with. Um, so yeah, ha Halloween, slasher classic. Uh, one of my, one of my favourite horror movies, personally. Um, so uh, let's let's get on to the next director. Um, let's talk about Wes Craven, who may rest in peace, passed away in 2015. Um, really do miss the guy because he has actually directed some of my favourite horror films. Um, such a, such an academic man as well. Every time I'd see an interview with him, just very articulate, very astute, just... Yeah, um, so let's talk about uh, what's kind of in the third place for you of his uh, three best films. Now, the thing is, for me, I mean, it's not necessarily a film I would say I enjoy. However, it's something that needs to be talked about, and that would be his overground directorial debut, The Last House on the Left. Okay. Now, it's like I said, we've got to stress that it's not an easy film to watch. Um, however, you know, it's a film that sort of kicked off everything. It's a film that... You know, the likes of Roger Ebert even sort of defended as well. The man who isn't a fan of horror films, who disliked A Clockwork Orange, who disliked Straw Dogs, suddenly, you know, is quite an adamant defender about what this film's trying to do, about the hypocrisies of violence. So, um, and, you know, in terms of censorship, it's got an amazing history. I mean, the film was prosecuted for obscenity, I think, four times in this wow. country. And it was not passed uncensored until 2008. So, um, in fact, um, the film critic, Mark Kermode, um, when it was originally rejected, actually um, to, um, participated in the appeal for it. So, um, okay, there are parts, I mean, it's quite an influential film as well. Um, did you ever watch The, the Untold Story? 
Um, I haven't. Uh, no, I haven't seen that. Um, I've seen the original. You know, I've I've seen the film. I've seen the film a few times. Um, it's not really. It's not a film that I'm particularly that much of a fan of. But I agree. It's a film that did play an important part in kind of exploitation cinema, if you will. Um, Most... And he collaborated, didn't he, with Sean Cunningham, that actually went on to direct Friday the Thirteenth. So yeah, you know that's you know it's a starting point, and it's certainly something stretches out. I mean, like even nods towards the last house on the left are certainly standard to some of uh, Craven's most um, mainstream works. I mean, we've spoken about this before. Yeah. Freddy Krueger, his name is very much inspired by the character of Krug played by David S. Yeah. A very despicable human being from what I recall. Oh, certainly. I mean, the family certainly had elements of the Banson family. Um, I think the, the, the documentary-esque approach, though, I think is brilliant, but it certainly didn't help with its griminess but that's the point it's supposed to be shocking it's supposed to be upsetting yeah. but imagine being in the 1980s you've just got your hands on the copy of this film and it's absolutely churned you know you talk about fourth grade video yeah it's already a nasty film so to watch that the effect that must have had on people yeah the the, the film definitely i mean it's been a few years since i've seen it the film definitely has a very raw visceral quality to it and you know i commend them they they achieved what they set out to do. Wes Craven achieved it for a film to actually, you know, hit a nerve uh, with people. Now, just not to get off topic or anything, what did you think to the 2009 remake? It lost the plot. I honestly thought, like, the way it ended with, you know, the son of um, Krug, it's just, I just went, it's kind of missed the point. However, I guess we've got to tolerate it because, well, it just shows that it's entered popular culture. Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought, to be honest, right, I thought as remakes go, I've certainly seen a lot worse. I've seen better, but I've certainly seen a lot worse. Um, yeah, yeah I, I still, because there's a certain aspect, there's obviously a certain thing, as you know, that I really struggle to stomach in film, and that is uh, rape. Oh, and yeah. uh, in both films, well, the 2009 remake um, mainly is, uh, I just, yeah, I can't watch that. I, I can't watch that kind of stuff. Um, it just oh man, it just seemed to go on forever and that. But no, I agree with you. Uh, Last House, while I'm not a fan, it's an important film. It is a it is a pretty important film for for the genre. I think the one final note is that it's very bizarre on um, the way the cops are depicted. It's very um, if it's not Lauren Hardy, then it's Abbott Costello. It's yeah. so hammy and so i know what it's trying to point out the it's the incompetence of the law if you will however it's just it just doesn't seem to fit and mm. i think that juxtaposition of grisly nastiness with absurdist comedy certainly did inspire things like um as i said the, the untold story hong kong category three film but we'll say that for a different time so um it almost it, it shouldn't work but west craven did yeah. But then again, we shouldn't be surprised by that. No, it put his name on the map. Um, and, uh, yeah. Um, well, in the third spot for me um, is Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Now, this is divisive. There's going to be people that hate me, that want to crucify me for saying this. I really like Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Um, I thought it was a great slice of postmodern horror. I like the fact they were doing something entirely new for that franchise that it kind of deconstructs the genre 
Um, you know, maybe it was too meta for some people, and uh, you know, it's not really a sequel per se. Um, because obviously, you know, in the, the, this film addresses the fact that the nightmare films aren't real, etc. Um, but I really, I, I love this movie. Um, I, I love just for how clever and inventive it is. And it came out a couple of years before Scream. You know, Wes Craven was doing postmodern horror a couple of years before, you know, the release of Scream. And, uh, you know, it gave us a dark Freddy Krueger. Um, and I just love the parallels it has to the original movie as well. Getting to see John Saxon playing John Saxon. All of these actors, Robert Englund, Wes Craven, playing themselves. Um, what's your what's your kind of overall thoughts on uh, New Nightmare? Oh, it's certainly like it's certainly subjected to the individual. I, th- I certainly think, uh, in terms of, I guess, sequels or sort of something that sort of picks apart the mythos of Freddy Krueger. I think it does a pretty good job. I know Lucio Fulci claimed that it's stole his it stole his idea for a cat in the brain, but that's again a completely different story. Hmm. I um the one bit was um, the interview with Wes Craven, you know, now that the films have ended, the genie's out of the bottle. It's yeah. just like, no, he's absolutely right. It's Kruger it. has entered into something else. Yeah. Like, worse than just a movie, a, a villain, an icon. Yeah. <laughs> That's something I love it else. when Freddie Freddy comes back and his first line to announce is, miss me. I just love that. And, and when he's, hey, Dylan, ever play Skin the Cat? I love that the fact there's nothing really jokey about Freddy in this film. You know, it's a darker, serious, and yeah, I, I think it's underappreciated. I think it's it's divisive. The people that like this film typically really like it, and the people that really don't, don't really don't. It's the most divisive film in that whole Nightmare franchise, I think. Um, but uh, yeah, so we're, we're going to get into the second film now, anyway. Um, this was tough. There were two films here, and I think everyone knows what they're going to be. Um, I'm going to put Scream in second spot. Um, what can I say? I mean, it reinvented and revived the slasher genre for the 90s. It's a film that pays homage. It celebrates the genre whilst playing on the conventions that we've all you know, come to know and love. Um, you know, it's clever, great screenplay by Kevin Williamson, great direction by Wes Craven, um, you know, great casting characters, um, and of course, a ghost face costume, um, which is, of course has become iconic. Um, I think you love, <laughs> I mean, it's safe to say you love Scream as well, don't you? I think considering of the enthusiasm that we both have whenever we have previously talked about the Scream films in our podcast, I think there's certainly a film that has hit, uh, has a place in both of our hearts. And that's where it is my favourite Wes Craven film. However, like you, it's difficult to say whether or not it is his best. I mean, there's so many quotable parts and there's something that disturbingly resonates with both of us. I mean, the amount of times we've quoted it and the amount of times it's just this warped cuddle, uh, warmth that I get from the film. Yeah. It's 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 a film that, you know, at the end of the day, it's not an outright comedy. It's a movie that certainly has humour, but it knows to be serious when it needs to be. And, you know, and yeah, like you said, the quietable lines. I mean, movies don't create psychos. You know, movies, movies make, psychos make psychos more creative. More creative. Uh, you know, it's a scream, baby. Um, I'll be right back. Just, just, oh, yeah. <laughs> number, it, it just, no, well, number three, never, ever at any point say, I'll be right back. Because you won't be back. Get another beer. You want one? 
Be right sure. back. <laughs> yeah, I love I love the it's self-referential, certainly. Obviously it makes a lot of references and uh it's it's really for the horror fans, the the, the die hard slasher fans out there, you know, that, that really kind of pick up on these. You know, a little cameo from uh Linda Blair, you know, from the Exorcist making a cameo uh Wes Craven himself, you know, wearing a striped jersey and hat, little nod to his own creation, Freddy Krueger. Um, yeah, I absolutely love Scream, and uh, you know the, the 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 twist at the end being two killers. Spoiler alert! I'm going to assume everyone listening has seen it. Um, just yeah, it was completely unexpected actually when I when I first saw it because I know the original title was going to be Scary Movie as well, wasn't it? So, yeah. yeah, so uh, which was end up being stolen by that parody of a parody, which again I just. I can't, I can't get my head around that. No. About with, with the scary movie, not Scream. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, it's a film that you know, if anyone's interested in that, we have done a Scream podcast, probably going back about probably about eight months, seven or eight months now. Um, so yeah, um, it's on the channel to listen to, where we do really kind of dissect that film. Uh, so number one, of course, is I think Wes Craven's first commercial success, his first big movie. A Nightmare on Elm Street, the film that kind of put New Line Cinema on the map. It was their first success that they had. It gave birth to the icon that is Freddy Krueger. Um, I'll let you take it away, mate. Um, Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, blind me. Okay, leave it to me. I guess so. I think the slasher. Genre, I think we spoke about this before. You know, the slasher genre uh, had sort of followed certain rules. So, but with the exception of Jason Voorhees and possibly Michael Myers. Freddy's, you know, he's a supernatural serial killer, so certainly breaks it with that. It's um, certainly more, as you said, with the new nightmare. It's going back to the darkly sort of sadistic Fred Fred Krueger, and it's it does play the idea that the sins of the parent fall upon their children. Yeah. And so, um, and that's quite an uncomfortable idea to go for that your fate is sealed because of what your parents did. That's that's a very uncomfortable concept. Yeah. It's a scary concept, isn't it? Someone trying to kill you in your dreams. If you die in your dream, you die in the real world. The whole concept of it is is scary. And it's like you said, Freddy Krueger is actually quite scary in this movie. It's little kind of little goofy moments here and there, but it's not to the point of parody. He's not a Looney Tunes character like he became in Freddy's Dead: The Final Nightmare, which I really, <laughs> which I really don't like. I, I, I get it's fun. I understand it. People like it for the fun it is. It just. By that point, I'd really kind of I was really missing the scare factor, you know, like the original had, um, you know, uh, this is God. And just just so many great moments, you know, uh, um, Glenn's death, Johnny Depp's death on the bed. Again, the the practicality of that being done as well is very unnerving. I believe it's actually um, not a huge. Role. I think uh, Watch Mojo did um top 10 most disturbing uh, cinematic deaths okay. and i believe it was glenn's fate that was amongst the top five i'm happy for someone to uh, fact check me on that oh, one wow yeah it's definitely it's definitely memorable i it, it scared me i was about five or six when i watched nightmare on elm street and that scene always stayed with me tina's death as well obviously the first victim in the movie is pretty barbaric um one particular scene that i love in the film uh, it's just just literally one scene. Is her in the bath? Nancy in the bath? And oh, Freddy's yeah, that's, hands coming that's, out. That's replicated. That scene has been replicated so many times. Again, though, it's harrowing because no one. I mean, 
to fall asleep deep is one thing. Yeah. To in the bath though, like the concept of just drowning is just yeah. I, I that's believe, something I struggle I, with. I believe that Wes Craven had actually you know again I'm ashamed for admitting this because this is one of the few Wes Craven films I'm yet to see. There's a movie he directed called Deadly Blessing, which was notable for starring Sharon Stone. And there's actually a scene in it in which he's in the bath. And I believe there's a snake in the bath. And Wes Craven almost recycled it for Nightmare on Elm Street. It's a very similar scene. Um, but but I absolutely love that moment. To... I have to admit, I can't say that I have seen that either. So I think we both need to do our homework on that one. One thing I do like is you'll be surprised at how much a nightmare, um, the last house on the left sort of has its um, tendrils in a nightmare on Elm Street, particularly when it comes to um, home defense. Yeah. Like the likes of the Hills of Eyes and of course, even in the last house, yeah. the idea of improvised um, house defenses of the exploding light bulb saying all these boob oh, traps yeah. in the yeah. house as well. You know, that's a, certainly an ongoing theme, you know, of this is your house. This is your fort. You will defend it. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Kind of like Home Alone before Home Alone, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I love the music, actually, because I love the score in Nightmare on Elm Street. And of course, one, two, three, it's kind of, you know, just just iconic, isn't it? Among among horror fans. Um, but yeah, Nancy Heather Langenkamp, a great kind of final girl, you know, um, the best since Laurie Strode, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, Nightmare on Elm Street, horror classic, it injected originality into the slasher genre. Hold that, I love that whole kind of surrealistic supernatural edge it has. I love that kind of like, are they awake or are they asleep? Do you know what I mean? It just distorting reality. Um, oh, certainly, and I think that's what made the big difference between the likes of jason and myers as we spoke beforehand and uh but it's well executed that's the key thing because yeah. it could have been clumsily done yeah that's right and uh yeah wes craven's uh best film in 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 my opinion um so we're going to get on to the final director now and uh that is going to be may he rest in peace uh george a romero the guy that is responsible for essentially creating the zombie genre that we know um, I actually met him at Comic-Con a few years, but I believe we, was we, we, yeah, we went together, didn't we, at that Comic-Con, didn't we? No, um, that, we, the one we went to was to see Nick Castle and Lance Henriksen. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Believe me, I would, if, if I was going to see George Romero, believe me, I, you'd know. Okay, I can't quite remember who I went with, but yeah, I, I got his autograph, he signed, uh, my copy of a DVD on a film that is going to be on this list. And, uh, yeah, he passed away a little while ago. And, yeah, again, one of the big names in the horror genre. Um, the the whole kind of zombie genre owes a lot to him. Um, so I'm going to talk about uh, the third film on the list. And um, in third place for me is Creepshow, released in 1982, um, which is very much kind of a love letter, a homage to, to the classic EC horror comics of the 1950s, of which I'm a big fan of. I love the Tales from the Crypt comics, Haunt of Fear, Vault of Horror. Uh, George A. Romero, along with many other people in the horror genre, uh, grew up reading these comics. Uh, Stephen King himself as well, who actually, this was a collaboration with him and Stephen King. Stephen King wrote it, he directed. Um, it's one of the best anthology films out there, uh, in my opinion. It's just a film that has a lot of fun with the five stories it has. I like the, the, the little wraparound with, again, Tom Atkins. Um, but I, I know it's been a long time for you, hasn't it, since you've seen Creepshow? 
It was one of those, I, as soon as I discovered it, I was very eager to get my hands on it, but not just a standard DVD, sort of, you know, one of those collector's items, yeah. if you will. So um, its visual aesthetics, I think, are absolutely beautiful. Again, it's the mixture of the likes of the practical effects, as well as some of the, the comic book look as well. Yeah. I just thought it was so beautiful to look at, and I think that in itself, King and Romero, what a collaboration. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, definitely. Very comic book aesthetics and, uh, yeah, some great practical effects, courtesy of old Tom Savini, who I don't think needs any introduction among horror fans. Uh, so, yeah, Creepshow. It had a sequel, Creepshow 2, which was quite good, actually. Uh, the third one, we're not even going to talk about that. It's not worth wasting oxygen on. Um, but yeah, Creepshow 2 was a, a quite a good sequel, three segments instead of five. Uh, but yeah, you got a great cast in there. I mean, let's not forget Ed Harris was in the first segment in this film. Ed Harris yeah. doing a cheesy little dance in the movie as well. I mean, it's worth watching just for that. <laughs> yeah, remember that. Adrian Barbeau oh. again, who I absolutely love. Do you know what? Adrian Barbeau, this is quite notable. I don't know how many actors can say this. She's worked with three big horror directors. She has worked with Craven, Romero, and Carpenter. How many other actors out there could say that? Do you know what? I can't really. No, nothing. No one in particular is really yeah, springing she, to mind. Um, yeah, because she was in Swamp Thing, um, nineteen eighty-two, same year as Creepshow. In fact, Wes Craven movie. Um, yeah, my favourite segment in the film. I mean, all five. I mean, Leslie Nielsen's in the film as well. <laughs> Before he was doing uh, Naked Gun, um, and uh, I like all five segments. Uh, but my favourite one is the crate with the kind of Arctic monkey um, that uh, Adrian Barbell and uh, I think it was Hal Holbrook. Uh, he obviously tries to get rid of his wife by using the uh, the Arctic monkey in that. But it's just a really fun anthology film. Which I think is um, is refreshing, I think, when you consider the likes of all the other films that he's done beforehand uh, that Romero did. Yeah. They're not exactly what you'd say more. It's not that Creepshow's light-hearted. It's just certainly, it's got what Evil Dead is defined for. You have fun while you're being scared, and it's scary to have fun. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, as I say, it was very much kind of a love letter to, to, to them EC horror comics of the 50s. Very much a tribute. And uh, so, yeah, um, second spot for me. Um, I'm going to let you take this one away. Um, well, and that is 1978's Dawn of the Dead. Oh, yeah. As I say, because uh, I know there's some people who have had huge disputes between what would make top and second. So, um, yeah. So after, um, I think, a decade of um, unsuccessful films with the likes of The Crazies, Martin, as well Season of the Witch, we finally got ourselves the sequel, which, well, it's set in the same universe, but it doesn't have the same characters as from Night. However, it's just, it's a zombie film with a with a brain inside of its head. In fact, I mean, like, again, to quote um, the film critic Roger Rebers, who gave a full four stars, said it's one of the greatest horror films ever made. No one ever said art had to be in good taste. And he's absolutely right. There are some genuine unpleasantries at ease in this film, which, again, top-notch special effects by Savini, who himself, made a nice little cameo as a, as a biker gang. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he uh yeah, he was one of the biker gang. It, it's yeah, I like I love the setting for the film. It's obviously, you know, Night of the Living Dead is what started the entire zombie genre pretty much as we know it. 
Dawn of the Dead is clearly a bigger movie. You know, more scope. Um, it's a long film as well, isn't it? It's well over two hours. That depends on which version you're talking about. Okay. Because you have the uh, the Argento cut as well, which I believe is stretching to two hours and ten minutes. Again, I'm happy to be corrected on that. There's at least three different versions of it. I think there's like the Cannes version, the Romero version, and then the Argento version. Yeah. I think, see, the thing is, right, I, I don't know how many versions I've seen. I really don't. Um... I used to have it on DVD, and I think it was about two hours ten. So it, it could actually be the Argento cut that I saw. Um, but it's certainly an iconic horror movie. It's certainly very influential. Um, you know, as I said, you know, it, it, a bigger movie. It makes a lot of commentary as well. I think about consumerism and so forth. There's a lot of commentary in the film. Um, the kind of underlying. And uh, like you said, great, great practical effects, courtesy of Tom Savini and that. Um, and I'll admit, I liked the 2004 remake. Well, I think uh, we both have a few things to certainly say on that film um, in a future podcast. So um, on a simple note, as remakes go, it's better than it deserved to be. So um, again, it's it doesn't have the brain that uh, Romero's film have. We'll certainly say that for a different time. Yeah. I mean, it, it was Zack Snyder's directorial debut, wasn't it? The very first film he directed. And I almost forgot until recently that um, uh, oh, his name's escaping me. James Gunn James. actually wrote the screenplay for it. Actually, when we, whenever we do talk about that, I've got a fact to point out about James Gunn, which will make perfect sense. Okay, cool. Well, I look forward to So, yeah, people listening, uh, there is going to be a 2004 Dawn of the Dead uh, podcast. We will be doing that soon. Um, so yeah, we'll uh, dissect that film. But yeah, Night of the, um, sorry, Dawn of the Dead '78. You know, it's a classic. Um, it's not my all-time favourite zombie film, um, but it isn't far off. And uh, you know, it's one of the movies as well that I feel I, I really like the kind of claustrophobic aspect. Now, it's not obviously as claustrophobic as Night of the Living Dead because it's a much larger setting and all this. But you know, defenceless, they're in this. This this mall and you know the world is basically in a state of ruin now, and uh, yeah, just the whole idea for the film. And I really didn't realise that Roger Ebert gave it such a um, a lightning review. Yeah, it's again, it's surprising when you consider his gen general history with horror hasn't exactly been over enthusiastic. In fact, he gave a slightly more positive review than he did for Night of the Living Dead. Oh, okay. Wow. I believe he gave it three and a half stars out of four for night. But again, though, I think slightly different time, though. However, you know what? I mean, he was certainly very like zealous and quite enthusiastic about both the films. So I thought that's good. Yeah, definitely. It's 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 a sequel that I mean, obviously, it's the second part in what was dubbed the uh, the dead trilogy, followed by Day of the Dead, which didn't quite get into my top three. Uh, it wasn't far off. Day of the Dead really wasn't far off. That would have been in fourth place. Um, um, I, I, funny enough, it wouldn't be for me. It'd have to be Martin. Oh, okay, Martin. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've seen that. I need to rewatch that. As a vampire film, I'll tell you what. Again, it's so much better than uh, than people make it out to be. It's it's. I'm still waiting for a restoration copy to come out from, like, say, Arrow Video. I think they already did one. Again, I'm happy to be corrected on that. Okay. Um, well, so I think we know, uh, just, just to kind of like reiterate, just to confirm in that. So is Dawn of the Dead your number one or number two for Romero? It's my favorite. Again, I think, um, as we've spoken about previously with Carpenter and Craven, it's my favorite. It's, I won't necessarily say it's his best. Okay. 
So, right, well, my my number one um, is, I'm sure everyone that knows me knows that I love this movie, uh, Night of the Living Dead, the film that essentially gave birth to the zombie genre as we know it. Uh, George Romero kind of, you know, setting the template, if you will, um, you know, building up the conventions uh, in this one movie, you know, uh, shooting them in the head, if you're bitten, you become a zombie, um, all of the conventions were kind of set in place in this film. I love the black and white, low-budget, grainy look. Um, the black and white just adding to the film's atmosphere and creepiness, in my opinion. It's, it's just—it's it, almost like it's a very kind of extended Twilight Zone episode. Um, and I saw this film as a kid. I was probably seven, eight years old. It terrified me. I watched this really late at night, and I remember just being scared. Um, what's your What's your thoughts on Night of the Living Dead? Well, I think I did watch it a little bit later than when you did. However, I was surprised by it, I think, on, on multiple fronts, especially with the way it ends. I mean, I remember um, Nightmares of Red, White and Blue, George Romero's being interviewed about Night of the Living Dead, and that it's how it's a film that encapsulates the time that it was made, the anger and the disappointment of the time. You know, yeah. you know peace and love didn't win anything. You know, in fact, you know, things were getting worse. So this film was very much a response to the cultural conundrum that was kicking off at the time. And you can certainly think when you contact, when you put it in that context, it makes perfect sense. And it is, um, I think you could class it as a countercultural film when you consider the lead actor himself, who is very good. I will say, and considering that he, you know, he, he himself was black, you know, was a bit of a game changer. And I think his character was certainly, and I certainly quite, um, inspiring to a lot of people i want to say even barack obama is cited him oh really okay wow um i didn't know that but uh, yeah the ending is bleak um it certainly has an ending you're not going to forget um you know obviously spoiler alert you know he actually survives the night only to get killed which i'm sure probably made some commentary at the time i don't know but we're not we're not going to go into that we're not going to going to politics and all that um but uh yeah i mean a very influential film hugely influential um i think the whole zombie genre owes so much to night of the living dead i don't even think just zombies as well um the author kim newman actually wrote a book called uh, nightmare cinema and he actually argues that a lot of the horror that we now know and love all stems from the likes of Night of the Living Dead with its claustrophobia, with its subversion of expectations, yeah. uh, the surrealism, as well as just uh, dabbing into the horrors of the time as well. So um, that certainly a, is a strong argument you could make for it. Very, very influential. I don't think we could ever state that. As... Yeah, it, it's very much a cult classic, isn't it? I know that Tom Savini was actually... Uh supposed to do the practical effects but he actually got sent to uh, vietnam but obviously came back for um you know he was able to do uh, dawn of the dead um and it just has one of the most iconic lines in the history of horror they're coming to get you barbara oh the amount of times i've quoted that to people it's just a stare especially when you've got co colleagues who are actually called barbara i yeah. think shock especially when they know where the where the line comes from as well yeah i, I really like the line as well uh which obviously pays Great horror comedy, Shaun of the Dead. We're coming to get you, Barbara. <laughs> Which again, that that is one of the shining examples of um, how influential. Did we speak about this of how 
Romero was so impressed by what Edgar Wright did yes. that he offered roles to Pagan Wright in Land of the Dead. Yep. Yeah, we did. They make cameos as zombies, don't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, with Night of Living Dead. And I'm not ashamed to admit this either. I like the remake. Um, yeah, completely unnecessary. Certainly doesn't really need to be remade. Um, but the remake released in 1990, directed by Tom Zavini himself. Um, I like it. I actually like it. I think it's a remake that doesn't really get talked about quite enough. Um, have you have you seen the remake? I did, but it was a while back. It's one of those remakes where I I don't feel like there's any negative emotion towards it, but there isn't anything I can feel that's overly positive. I mean, I think you know, it mean it's in capable hands with the likes of, of Tom Savini. So there isn't really much of a positive or negative response for that. Weirdly enough, there's actually a nod to um, Savini's Night of the Living Dead in Tropic Thunder. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, Daniel McBride's character is, uh, I believe he's wearing a vest, which even um, points out the, t- the title um, and the year it was made as well. Oh, right. Oh, cool. I haven't seen that film in a long time. Tropic Thunder's really good, though, from what I remember of it. Yeah, we'll certainly have to save that for an, uh, another time, though. I think, though, um, Criterion. Oh, did you ever get your hands on the Criterion edition of Night of the Living Dead? It's the version I have. Yeah. Yeah, it is absolutely superb. That's, that is the treatment that the film deserves. Yeah, and you've just reminded me, I'm not going to go into it. I'll save this for another podcast. There is another black and white horror film from the 60s that I bought a few months ago on Blu-ray. Uh, called Carnival of Souls. Oh, so And very uh, much a cult classic, released in 62. Um, I, I love it, because that movie is very... It has a definite Twilight Zone aesthetic to it. Um, I really do like Carnival of Souls, and yeah, fant- again, a fantastic restoration. Um, so, yeah, I think I think that's pretty much it now um, for, for the listings and that. So, yeah, Night of the Living Dead's my number one, so Dawn of the Dead's your number one. Uh, well i mean yeah in this case yeah yeah um so yeah um i think that's i think that's pretty much it so what we're probably going to do um is we're going to wrap this up and uh we're going to look to do another podcast and focus on three other directors uh we'll have a discussion as to who's going to be showcased but i do believe we're kind of Kind of angling towards the likes of Lucio Fulci, possibly Cronenberg, and uh, maybe Toby Hooper. We'll see. Um, and of course, yeah, Sam Raimi's another possible candidate there as well. So, uh, but yeah, uh, thanks to thanks a lot for everyone that listened. Um, we'll be back again soon to haunt you and torment you. Um, so thanks for listening if you've liked what you've heard please feel free to subscribe to my youtube channel talk and stalk and we'll be back again soon thank you all very much and always double check your beds and don't forget we're going to be back for the sequel because as Stu mac has said these days let's face it babies these days you gotta have a sequel okay (laughs) all right thanks a lot for everyone for listening take care